Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. I'm joined by Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby on most shows. Just Wayne is with me today. Marty's got the day off. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action, and Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. Uh, I got to say thanks first to Wayne and Marty for their completely gracious uh, time off for me. This is our first podcast in a while. Uh, I had to take a leave to attend to some family medical crises, and um, uh, it's good to be back behind the microphone and talking to Wayne and the many interesting people who come through the podcast. As is our custom, we'll go over first to Wayne for a quick howdy and a legislative update on what's happening at Animal Wellness Action. Joe, it's great to have you back and uh, in your rightful place behind the microphone. Uh, There has been a lot of action. I think it's very apropos for the rest of the podcast when we're going to bring horses into the equation in a major way and their role in the settlements uh, of the country and their big role um, in America in the late 19th century. But the big news is really out of Kentucky, your home state, uh, Joe, Senator Mitch McConnell uh, has introduced a bill this week that's a compromise bill to end doping in American horse racing. And on the same day that he introduced the bill, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, by a vote of 46 to 5, approved that same bill, readying it for House floor action. So we're late in the 116th Congress in the second term. Not many legislative days left. The election will interrupt the legislative work for quite a period. It looks like there's a very good chance that this legislation uh, will be enacted. A big coalition of animal welfare groups and horse industry groups have said the time has come to end doping in American horse racing. So good work, sir, and to Marty as well. I know it's a team effort, and you have a lot of folks behind the scenes there uh, helping you out as well. So bravo. Uh, And and that does segue, because horses do play a big role in the topic of our show today, and I'm really excited to have uh, as our guest uh, Dr. Ernest Freeberg. He is an American historian in 19th and 20th century American culture uh, and is the Distinguished Humanities Professor and Departmental Chair of History at the University of Tennessee. Uh, He's written three books, The Education of Laura Bridgman, First Deaf and Blind Person to Learn Language, Democracy's Prisoner, came out in 2008, about socialist leader Eugene V. Debs, who ran for the presidency from behind bars, which who knows, the way things are going, Dr. Freeberg, we might see that happen again. (laughs) I mean, crazier things. uh, Well, obviously, this has happened. And then finally, the age of Edison, electric light, and the invention of modern uh, America. So uh, glad to have you here, sir. Uh, We're talking about your new book, A Traitor to His Species, Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement. Um, As I said to you, sir, in an email prior to this, uh, gosh, you're an incredible writer. I mean, you, you tell a story as beautifully as the story itself is interesting. So uh, I really enjoyed my time with the book and thanks for letting me get a copy of it beforehand. Sure. It's my pleasure. It was, it was uh, easy to tell a good story about Henry Berg. He was really a fascinating character. And I think really one of the really underappreciated social reformers, Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to students uh, about this time period. We think of this as an age of reform, but I think that the the profound changes in human relationship to animals that occurred in this period is often left out of the, you know, the conventional narrative of the way we talk about, about this time period. So it was nice to, I learned a lot myself in, in pursuing the story. How did Mr. Bird come to your attention? Um, what attracted you first to his story? It was the story of the, the great horse flu of 1872, which uh, started in Montreal and over the course of a year spread all the way to Nicaragua and everywhere it went, uh, the horses uh, and mules in the area got sick about 90, 95%, uh, almost overnight, in, in, very often. 
And as I, I, des I describe it as America's first energy crisis, because it really entirely shut down the American economy in one place after another uh, where this happened. And not only was it uh, devastating to the economy, but uh, people who were desperate to, to use their horses, I mean, it really made it clear to people how totally dependent they were on horses to, to move everything in the economy. You know, we think of this as the era of the railroad, but in fact, railroads themselves were completely reliant on horses to carry materials to and from the railroad and to move the railroads, uh, trains around the yard and so forth. At any rate, so people were desperate to, to, to work these horses, even though they were sick with this flu. And when they did, they, the horses would develop a terrible uh, secondary sort of pulmonary illness and, and often die a very painful death overnight. So in, in, in the midst of this, uh, Henry Berg, I found, uh, was planting himself in the streets of New York and stopping horse traffic and, and insisting that these horses go back to the barn. And many, many people felt he was you know, meddling with property that didn't belong to him or that, that uh, you know, he was risking the lives of human beings who ought to be riding in these trolley cars and, and trains and so forth. But he held firm and uh, he actually developed a lot of sympathy uh, from, from people at that point who could see how, how uh, sick these horses were. And there was just that image of Henry Berg uh, with a top hat and silver cane often at his side, uh, uh, standing up in the middle of the streets and and doing this that just, you know, I felt like I had to know more. Right. And, and, and Berg himself was kind of a, what one might consider today an unlikely candidate to take such a, a role of reform. He didn't have to really do anything, but he went way out of uh, his comfort zone, or maybe it was his comfort zone, to do something we wouldn't imagine maybe a lot of, uh, uh, you know, second generation wealthy people doing. A friend of his once called him the riddle of the 19th century, trying to understand what it is that happened to him at the age of 53. He had never expressed a lot of interest in animals, didn't have uh, pets of his own. Uh, in fact, didn't seem to really like animals all that much. What he really hated was human cruelty. He was a fa sort of a failed playwright. He made a lot of money, uh, inherited a lot of money from his, his father, ran a cordage business in, in New York and a shipyard and was, was uh, very successful. And Henry Bird took that money and went off to Europe and and wrote very bad plays and and sort of maudlin verse and didn't quite know what to do with himself until that moment in 1850 uh, when he was 53 years old uh, where he just it was during the Civil War and he was in Russia he was the uh, ambassador uh, or in the State Department there and he just couldn't stand it anymore he was watching uh, a, a, a teamster whip a horse and he demanded that the person stop and the person did and he was so struck by you know being able to do one good thing that uh, somehow he always described that as the sort of conversion moment uh, and he went to uh, England and learned about uh, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals which had been in the you know basically started this movement in the 1820s he learned all he could and then he brought that back to the United States and founded the ASPCA uh, in 1866. Well, thanks, Joe. And Dr. Freeberg, thank you very much for this really great contribution to the historical literature in animal welfare. There is a work, I think, in the biographical sphere in this movement. And it reminds me, with your really vivid storytelling about Henry Berg's work in the streets, stopping cruelty right there, confronting dogfighters, cockfighters, horse abusers, uh, people killing frogs. I mean, all sorts of things that he did that, you know, that a lot of time I was a history student and, and, you know, I think Henry Berg was a great man in the sense of his work for animals. I mean, he changed the course of animal protection in the United States by giving it this incredible liftoff. Right. And he, he really was uh, the right person at the right time, I, I think, to, to do this. He had some, you know, even though he was a failed playwright, he also was a very, uh, somebody who understood the levers of power to some extent and he was also uh, you know incredibly articulate and uh, theatrical as necessary he understood uh, the power of dramatizing the the plight of animals uh, very effectively uh, so that was that was quite important it is worth noting i mean he was 
you know, the, for a lot of years, people considered this movement to be essentially Henry Berg's movement. It was Bergism, you know, uh, anytime anybody was out defending animals, they would say, here's another Henry Berg. Uh, but at the same time, it's fascinating to notice that there were really thousands of men and women in this period who, who joined this movement. You know, Berg was the, the lightning rod that everybody was paying attention to, and he used that uh, pulpit very effectively. But there were many, many people who, you know, at that moment, decided this was the next important cause. You know, I thought a lot of them were really motivated by the recent success of the anti-slavery movement. Same ideas and, and the whole idea was that suffering should be eliminated whenever it can be. You're touching on exactly where I was going to go next, and that is a question um, whether you would place the animal welfare movement in a broader historical context. Because indeed, you know, the late 1800s, post-Civil War, saw a lot of dramatic uh, increases in attention to suffering. Of course, Mr. Berg himself went on, uh, you know, to to work for child welfare and and, uh, founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Um, uh, You had the anti-slavery movement. Um, You had also, I think, uh, growing attention to women's suffrage. Give us a sense of what that time must have been like and how the animal rights movement emerged from it. Yeah, I think that's right. We, we need to put animals in this regard into that wider context of, of the idea that that uh, suffering was something which was not inevitable, you know, not not a, just a part of, uh, of life that had to be endured, but rather was something that uh, in many ways could be eliminated, right? That cruelty was not just built into human nature, but was something that, that uh, with the right reforms could be actually bred out of human nature, you know, partly by punishing people who were cruel, but also by teaching an, the next generation kindness. Uh, so, you know, so education was, you know, starting in the 1830s in the United States with the common school movement, the Sunday school movement. It was the real faith, and it was a really a, a democratic faith that it would be possible to solve problems through systematic education uh, and through through the rule of law. And, you know, I have, this is Wayne again, a couple of thoughts on that to throw your way, uh, Dr. Freeberg. One is, I mean, the nation went through this terrible cataclysm uh, of a civil war and this, this battle over, over slavery. Henry Berg comes one year after slavery ends. And I, I think that, you know, in some ways the, the anti-slavery cause and the, the, the cause to, to eradicate it across the country, you know, sucked all the oxygen up, uh, but it created then some space for other concerns to flourish. And Berg stepped in. And I think at the same time, you saw this urbanization in America, and you could see more vividly cruelty to animals right in front of you. And most social movements are born of crisis. And this seemed to be one, the right timing, as you said, but it's also um, the newly emerging cities were putting animals and people together, whether it was disease and cruelty, and somebody had to step in and deal with it. That's right. 19th century moralists were very keen to the importance of, of the visual in order to stir sympathy, right? And, and uh, think about the propaganda that the abolitionists, the anti-slavery movement used. They were really trying to dramatize through things like Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and uh, the uh, images of the abolitionist movement, trying to appeal to people's conscience through a, vis- a visual cue about, about human suffering. Uh, and I think a lot of those ideas were, were you know, very clearly picked up by the animal uh, rights movement, the animal welfare movement in this period. And Henry, a very common thing for abolitionists was to gather all of the uh, instruments of cruelty that's, that slaveholders used. And Henry Berg did the exact same thing as soon as he set up the ASPCA in New York was to turn the front hall into a little museum of uh, atrocious devices that were used on animals uh, to try to use that visual cue to, to get people to, to feel more sympathetically toward, toward animals. Was he an anti-slavery advocate, uh, Henry Berg? Not in any active way. No, but I think many of the other followers, uh, people who joined the movement, uh, uh, were certainly considered themselves to be part of that. I think he was in general sympathetic to the cause, but you know, he was in he was in Europe writing plays and attending museums and so forth during during these crucial years. I mean, that's part of the mystery is the you know what suddenly flipped the switch on his conscience to to lead him to to take the lead in this. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, being in my mid-50s myself, I, I take, just as an aside, a, a great deal of inspiration from the fact that he was, you know, rather late in life to find his calling. But for that trip to St. Petersburg and his experience there, history would not know the man's name. But notwithstanding his his age, he really took up something he felt hard about, heartly about, and um, and made a difference. So, uh you know, Wayne is still in his early 30s, you know, late 20s. He's a <laughs> he young man. And, yeah, uh, you know, but uh, it, it's very encouraging to me to have seen him do that late in life like that. Well, and I also I also think that, you know, it's it's remarkable, Dr. Freeberg and and Joe to to you as well. that here's a man obviously, you know, taking ideas that have been circulating in Europe bringing them to the United States in an organized sort of fashion, creating an organization to advance this work. But he immediately goes in, and it's not just horses. I mean, he's, he's involved in helping all animals. He's not an orthodox animal rights person in the sense that he's not a vegetarian or a vegan. He was concerned about slaughterhouse treatment, as Dr. Freeberg notes in, in the book, you know, the, the, uh, the meat pack. New York, uh, which now has a very different uh, smell and texture to it, uh, but he was advocating dogs. He was advocating against sports uh, that that caused injury to, to animals. I, I mean, to me, Doctor Berg, this is an amazing part of your story. Is the breadth of his work? That's right. I think when the New York Legislature uh, passed this law, and when Henry Berg stood up at, at um, you know Clinton Hall in in 1866 and said, you know, he asked really some of the the you know, leaders, uh, you know, mayor and the police officials and and wealthy philanthropists, he said, you know, look, we we need to essentially issue a, an animal bill of rights, and and stop cruelty to animals. Nobody was in favor of cruelty, right? But the real key was that the law that has passed said suggested horses, livestock, and so forth, and all animals. And I think most people, including those who were supporters, did not think he was going to take this law and apply it to turtles and to rats being chewed up in, in rat fights, uh, you know, with terriers, uh, and pigeons being shot by, by elite sportsmen. Many people said, look, we believe in your cause, but you're pushing it too far. What we really meant to do was to protect horses, Maybe dogs, you know, one person, one editor suggests, you know, at the cats at the very bottom. But beyond that, this is not what the law is for. You know, and, and really it was, it was Henry Berg pushing this argument in all kinds of directions uh, uh, that I think he deserves tremendous credit for. I'm not sure that any other uh, reformer in this movement was ready to push the conversation in so many different directions uh, the way he did. And he didn't win every time, but he really forced a really fascinating conversation about our obligation to other species uh, over the course of the next 20 years. And, and there was even a few instances, or there were, where experts were debating whether living creatures were animals at all, if I remember correctly from the book. Right. Yeah, especially came up, I think, with the, with the turtle case, which, you know, Berg later said he, you know, he picked the turtle case where he was essentially uh, trying to convict a ship captain for shipping turtles. They were shipped uh, up from from the Florida Keys, flipped upside down and with ropes driven through their flippers in order to hold them together. And he took the captain to trial. And the defense was turtles are, are, are not animals. Right. And he said, well, look, it's animal, veg you know, animal, vegetable, mineral which how could, how could this not be an animal you know and they said well no it's it's not an animal it's a fish or it's not an animal it's somewhere but you know the sort of murky i don't know whether these people really believed what they were saying or whether they were just trying to use this as a legal technicality but, well there were more there were more recent historical examples of that in 1961 there was a famous decision infamous decision in Oklahoma by a judge that said the animal fighting statute just applied to dogs, that chickens were not animals. And then, of course, at some years ago, um, Jesse Helms of North Carolina took the Senate floor under the Animal Welfare Act and basically said that the Animal Welfare Act standards for laboratory animal use would not apply to rats, mice, and birds, that he essentially defined 
rats, mice, and birds not to be animals for the purposes of, of animal welfare protections, the minimal protections under the Animal Welfare Act. So this has been a long uh, tradition of trying to, you know, split species off and to say that some are worthy of protection, others are not. In your book, I read about how uh, Mr. Berg really began to doubt the decency of human beings and their ability to be converted to a more compassionate mindset. And he thought that really punishment uh, and in laws and imprisonment were the only ways uh, to go about that. Did he ever begin to see humans as a potentially more kindly animal? You know, he was a, he was a traditional Yankee elitist uh, nativist who felt like the, you know, the particular people that were causing most of the violence were, were immigrants and working class people, even though, as I, you know, try to make clear in the book, he also went after wealthy people as well. Uh, you know, it was either greed or ignorance, one side or the other, that, he's, that he was uh, dealing with. He did support the, you know, the humane education movement, but clearly he felt like enforcement was, was, was going to be necessary, or at least a, a portion of uh, the population it's the threat of being punished that is going to stop them from being cruel. You know, others have pointed out, I think, that the most important innovation that Henry Berg made was to incorporate the use of, of appointed agents who essentially were, were, you know, peace officers who were empowered with, you know, badge wearing, sworn in with a warrant, able to go out in the streets and either to arrest people that they saw uh, who were cruel or to warn them or in some cases to call for police backup and expect that the police would, would support them and, and arrest people who were you know, beating their horses or, or torturing a dog or whatever they might, might find. It was really that enforcement mechanism. There had been laws before 1866 against cruelty to livestock and so forth, uh, but there was no enforcement mechanism. And this really is a, a important expansion of the state power you know, that it wasn't just a law designed to push people in a particular moral direction, but it actually had some teeth to it. Uh, and, and that was really transformative for the movement and evolved into, as you were suggesting earlier, the, uh, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children ended up using the same techniques. And ultimately, this evolves into, into the uh, social welfare uh, program, you know, social workers and so forth. The idea that there are, the state has a responsibility to put people in the field, not just police, but people who actually are specifically attuned to these issues and understand what those issues are and are able to, to enforce them. You know, this issue has, has come up, you know, on the sequencing here. Well, isn't it interesting that you had a society of cruelty to animals that preceded uh, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children? You know, my thought on that is the exploitation of animals is not just random acts by people whose empathy is dulled. It's like a, a parent who abuses a child, uh, you know, an animal guardian who abuses, abuses an animal. Animals are used in institutional settings. I mean, they're used in slaughterhouses. They're shot for sport. Uh, they are used in science. They're used in so many industrial ways, which is why the crisis is so much larger and you would think that people would rush in to address that, but we also see the connectivity of concerns in, in this. And ultimately, both organizations, I think, sprang from a misuse of power, that, that people who had authority and power over lesser creatures, um, less more vulnerable creatures, you know, really improperly exercised that authority. And to me, you know, you just thinking about those two kind of coincident movements, those are just a few reflections on that. I don't know what your view on that is. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. That one of the struggles I think that the movement had uh, and, you know, maybe still continues to have is that the, the systemic cruelty, the industrial scale cruelty is in some ways more invisible. I mean, what, it was easier for Henry Berg and many others to rally against the, the sight of people beating their horses in the street or you know, skinning a cat. It was much harder to get a grip on things like livestock transportation, uh, and, you know, which, was, which was continental in scale 
and uh, largely conducted out of sight. It took a lot of work. Uh, you know, those who are working against ag-gag laws now understand this as well as anybody that that it's you know it's it's important to make those things visible, and it was not that easy to do uh, for the for the systemic cruelties. And, and, and running into the running into the the, the sportsmen, you know, who were shooting pigeons. You know, early in my career, when I was a college student, just doing volunteer activism, I went to a small town in Pennsylvania called Higgins in the Appalachian Mountains, and they had a a live pigeon shoot as a fundraiser for the fire department. They would shoot five to six thousand pigeons, and you know, the men would be shooting the pigeons who were released from boxes, and then the boys in town would be conscripted into this. They were called trapper boys and would run out onto the field and twist the heads off of the wounded flopping birds. And you think, my God, you know, Berg was fighting this uh, in the 1870s, and now we still have it in the 21st century, and you can be deflated. You know, you, you, you just don't have the same circumstance with all animal issues. Some have been advanced very measurably. Others, you know, have been static because of lack of attention. You know, there's also innovations. Human innovations give a lift to animal welfare advocates. And obviously it was after Berg, but the development of the automobile, uh, you know, really helped clinch the issue of, of cruelty to horses in the streets in many American cities. I think the same issue came up with the, with the cattle transportation, you know, that, that it's, it's hard to think about uh, the the system that developed out of Chicago as being a reform, but the, at the time, the reformers, uh, Henry Berg and others, were applauding the fact that these uh, livestock were being centralized and slaughtered closer to the area where they were raised, rather than having to th then be shipped from Chicago over to, to eastern cities where they suffered tremendously without food and water for days and, and days often. It's hard for us to look back on that as, uh, you know, the, the Chicago meatpacking system as a as something that's more humane, but I, so I was fascinated to learn that that uh, the humanitarians were concerned about trying to encourage people to uh, try eating meat on ice shipped from Chicago rather than butchered in their local neighborhood uh, as a humane reform. It was not done in order to by by uh, Swift and Armour in order to be kind to to, to cattle, but it turned out to be uh, actually a, a benefit of some sort. I've, I've had a little theory, and I, I run it by both of you, Joe and, and Dr. Freeberg, that, you know, when cruelty is right in front of you every day, as it was with the stockyards and slaughtering operations in cities, you become a little more dull to it. When the factory farms and the slaughterhouses moved away from cities because of duration, you know, slaughtering and then moving the carcasses uh, to, the, to the major markets, it wasn't part of our daily experience. We didn't get dull to it. And then when we see the image, we're horrified because it's very much at odds with our own emotional instincts to be caring toward animals. I, I wonder if, if that circumstance occurred to you at all or that dynamic occurred to you at all. I think that's probably true. I think, you know, I was struck by this, the, the accounts that people would consider this, the local slaughterhouses, you know, in, in any urban city in the East, there were you know, many, many, many small and large slaughterhouses sort of peppered within within neighborhoods. Children and, you know, bored people would go by and watch animals be slaughtered sort of as a form of entertainment. Uh, and this was something that Berg found horrifying and felt like, you know, this is, you know, this in, in made people callous. So I, I think that fits exactly with your argument in the sense is, you know, if people grow up around this, they, they, they lose this, this, the sensitivity to it. Uh, and it should be removed from view because it, it, it creates, you know, essentially would create uh, cruel human beings who would grow up around these sorts of things. On, on the other hand, I was struck by the number of times that removing things from view was the solution. It, it didn't necessarily make it too much better for the animals uh, in question to have it removed from view, right? We can't look at at the industrial factory farming, which is actually harder to see now and say that that has benefited uh, the animals, right? And I think in the same way about the chapters I, where I explore the, 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 the annual war on dogs that occurred in cities, you know, that there was a concern about rabies. There were many, many stray dogs in, in cities. And so cities would respond periodically every summer by putting a bounty on, on dogs. 
and children, you know, were encouraged. Immigrants were, you know, to make a little money, were encouraged to track down dogs in the alleys and and beat them to death and drag the carcasses in for a fifty cent payoff. You know, and this was this was horrendous. Obviously, the solution though was, you know, clearly humane, which was to gather them to a central location to create the first shelter systems and to euthanize them in as humane a, a technique as possible. But isn't it the case that that in itself makes the problem invisible to us? I mean, we hear the numbers of, of dogs that are destroyed uh, every year, but it doesn't have the same impact to us because it's, it's just a number. And the framing of it as animal control, this was the origin of animal control, that animals were bad and needed to be controlled. Uh, you know, we now refer still to many public agencies as animal care and control. But I think we've got to get away from this control concept uh, because it really is at odds with, I think, the caring approach that we take on this issue. In, in social media and the economics tied to animal welfare seemed to me to be a, a completely new and, and vibrant dynamic. And probably sounds rather, you know, naive to even suggest that it's not the case. Uh, I I wonder uh, how um, Mr. Berg would would comport himself in an era of social media if he had had some of these, you know, these tools. For Berg, he was really, really a propagandist. I don't think he, I'm trying to think of ways he might have been able to put some pressure. I think the closest thing maybe was his ability to to occasionally shut down the the trolley uh, system in cities. You know, he would he found that a that a company, you know, these were very wealthy, deeply capitalized companies that that had uh, an exclusive franchise to run horse trolleys up and down the streets in in American cities, uh, and he would use his power to stop uh, the abuse of horses and just stopping these trolleys in their tracks. And sometimes this would these would pile up for you know fifty cars behind them, uh, everybody debating whether Berg was an enemy of humanity or a friend of the horses and you know, it, it was an economic pinch on the trolley companies, but it also provoked, you know, nobody could have could avoid noticing that the SBCA movement was there when it was causing major traffic jams and, you know, causing these these uh, these corporations to squawk. But otherwise, I think he was relying an awful lot on, uh, he was a great speaker, apparently very charismatic in his way. You know, he'd spent his whole life around the stage. So, you know, people went to hear him speak, expecting that he was going to be this dreary fellow with a lot of, you know, he had a kind of a dreary look to him, you know, droopy mustaches and sort of sad look. Everybody thought he was constantly contemplating the, you know, the abusive horses because of the look on his face, you know. Uh, but he apparently was very clever and funny and and could hold an audience quite well. And so he did a tremendous amount of public speaking and he was a great flamboyant letter writer and uh, you know, used every opportunity for, you know, that was the powerful social media of the day to engage in these sorts of editorial battles with some of his rivals, uh, especially wow. P.T. Barnum. How did the media treat him? Many people just loved to ridicule him. You know, he was, and, and he took this, you know, as, as courageous as he was, he was not, a, not afraid to admit how much that hurt him. He had a, you know, he had a deep sense of his own dignity and uh, he was mocked in cartoons and so forth as being for being an animal lover you know uh, sort of the way we use the you know phrase tree hugger these days as a sort of pejorative right many people thought he was he was had gone far too far others said well he's eccentric he's obsessive but maybe we need that kind of person you know that we may not agree with everything he does but he's at least making us think and he's right often enough that you know, we still respect him. There were movements periodically to, to ban the, the ASPCA, to take away its charter, or to take away its power to enforce the law by, by removing the, these agents who were in the field do, doing the arrests. And Berg had to really rally public opinion at that point. Uh, and there were a couple of times when it really came down to just a few votes in, in the New York State Legislature about whether the, 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 the ASPCA would survive. Uh, past his first few years. But he was able to rally that, you know, even people who thought he was a little bit crazy uh, recognized the, the truth in, in much of what he was doing. 
Uh, and he was fearless. On. Yeah, I mean, taking on, um, uh, you know, Vanderbilt and, uh, you know, the uncle of Theodore Roosevelt, for example, right. one of the great patricians of New York City and, and Mr. Barnum, probably the best known uh, entertainer of the day. I mean, he had some serious uh, cojones uh, to really <laughs> wage a lot of those a lot of those battles. And, and it seemed to me as I read the book that, that the greatest moment of of uncertainty was when he was waging his campaign against the uh the pigeon shoots uh the the pigeon contest where he really felt himself against the boundary of what a patrician society would allow him to get away with uh, how do you see his battles eventually weighing on him and where did he draw the line one of his first and most important foes early on was was uh, Kit Burns, who was the organizer of, of dog fights and and the rat pit and so forth. And, and he was accused uh, often of picking on poor people, uh, and he was very sensitive to that, and, and you know really felt like it was important, even though he was himself a patrician and and, and an elitist in many ways, and he understood the ways of of the wealthy in New York and and the channels of power. It was really important to him that people understand that he was defending animals against the, both the abuses from the rich and the poor. And I think that, that the pigeon shooting was just one example of that, where he went up against uh, James Gordon Bennett Jr., really the most powerful editor in New York City, who was also a sportsman and kind of a, kind of a, a, a playboy and brought a lot of uh, exotic sports to, to uh, apparently he, was the, he brought polo and yacht racing and so forth to America. But he also was interested in pigeon shoots, these, you know, that Wayne was talking about these, you know, thousands of animals being shot down uh, for target practice. This was, this was popular entertainment and it was done by elite sportsmen with, uh, you know, you know, real uh, skills of, of marksmanship. And, and Berg took them on and it was not easy because they were extremely powerful. Uh, and he didn't think he would necessarily win. Uh, he did ultimately uh, compromise and uh, allow pigeon shooting to be by, by sports clubs to be uh, an exception to the rule. It was like the one place I could really find in, in the record where he kind of flinched against popular opinion. Uh, and I'm sure it had to do with the fact that, that he was going up against people where he thought he would lose and you know these were the kind of people who were likely to make donations to the ASPCA. Uh, they certainly made it clear to him that that, that they were he was crossing the wrong people. Ultimately, it was just the horrendous carnage of those pigeon shooting contests the, that led the state legislature to finally put a stop to it. Although Wayne, you're suggesting they didn't. In a few states, in a few states, it still goes on, unbelievably enough. But you know, one of the other things, Doctor. That, that strikes me as another high hurdle for him, Berg, um, in your outstanding book, A Traitor to a Species, that this was still a period when women didn't have the right to vote. There was a clear gender disparity. And if you look at the contemporary animal protection movement, female participation is enormous relative to male participation. Women in general hold more favorable views toward animal protection than men do based on voting behavior, on ballot initiatives and, and public attitude surveys. And, you know, you had a few women like Caroline Earl White who helped form the Anti-Cruelty Society in Philadelphia. But, you know, Berg was, was taking on the male establishment and, and he was doing it as a man without, you know, as much support from women as he would have if they had been fully enfranchised. Yeah, that's that's true. That's that's a good point. I think there was a lot of discussion here about what manliness is. You know, historians always look at just about any point in American history and see a crisis of masculinity. But I think, you know, this, I mean, as the, Wayne, this gets to your point about the urban nature of this of these issues. I think a lot of American men felt like uh, pigeon shooting and other sorts of uh, sports like this were a way to get in touch with uh, a pioneer American self uh, that was that was fading, right? They think about Theodore Roosevelt, who was who was himself such a such an enthusiastic shooter of animals, uh, and clearly is you know sort of a poster boy for that kind of uh, crisis of masculinity. 
uh, you know, both committed to conservation, but at the same time committed to the right to and and the value of hunting, right? Versus others, uh, other men at the time, Berg, one of them, who suggested that there's something fundamentally immoral and in, in, in the language of their time, unchristian or, you know, irreligious about shooting pigeons and or shooting any of God's creation, right? Or destroying anything like that needlessly. Uh, so there, the animal uh, welfare movement really got caught up in some very fundamental questions about what American men should should live like and what their values should be in an urban environment. Uh, and so that goes on today. I have a friend who uh, apologized to me before telling me this because he knew of my stance on the issue, but he said he took his son out, teenager, hunting to shoot a deer because that's a father-son rite of passage uh, in his culture and and fishing. I was always a city slicker for never wanting to go, you know, fish. Uh, that that it still endures, doesn't it? Sure, sure. I one of the one of the most absurd uh, lines of, of uh, defense for pigeon shooting, I thought, was the idea that this was was going to help a generation of young men become better marksmen in case the the, the United States ever got invaded. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, another another great New York humanitarian, you know, Cleveland Amory, um, who founded the Fund for Animals in the 1960s, he said that man, he, he used that term, he said man has an infinite capacity to rationalize his cruelty. <laughs> and I see it time and again, the concrete arguments to justify exploitation of animals to try to attach some social purpose or some social value to, you know, really a gratuitous act of violence against animals. You just see that over and over again. Well, let me ask you about this, because I one of the things I found really fascinating, this reminds me of the the, the exploration I, I, I did with, with uh, P.T. Barnum and Henry Berg's debates with Barnum, where, you know, Barnum, uh, far ahead of, you know, we, we now think about, about uh zoos and and maybe more responsible natural history exhibits barnum crammed an incredible range of wild animals into his american museum in downtown new york you know and drilled cut a hole in the floor in order to allow a giraffe to be able to stand there and you know put a hippopotamus in the basement and uh, whales in tanks and uh and the question emerged out of this whether this was as Barnum suggested, uh, a great public service that made people more uh, aware of and sympathetic to nature by being able to expose them uh, versus Berg's really abolitionist argument, which said this is completely unacceptable. And these, you know, these animals should be should be either humanely killed or sent back to their native environments. We have no business uh, doing this to them. Right. Uh, Again, it seems like the first salvo in a conversation that's still with us today, and although technology has changed this in, in many interesting ways. I think that many of the accredited zoos in the United States would condemn that sort of, um, that sort of display of animals as truly exploitative, not proper animal care, you know, what the origin in the wild and then shipped to the United States. It has, you know, many parallels with obviously chattel slavery and taking these creatures from their, their native places and putting them on display. In fact, in 1906, the Bronx Zoo put a human on display, uh, a pygmy named Banga, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a human in a zoo setting with remains, you know, as a historical example of how far people will go um, without limits in terms of laws and, and legal standards. Yeah. Um, doc, Dr. Freeberg, how has your own perspective to animals and your understanding of their needs changed as a process of writing this book? I, I think I've become uh, much more, more aware of the uh, enormous effort it has taken to, to generate uh, support for animals, the animal welfare movement as a whole. You know, I, I, my focus really in this case was on the founding, what I, you know, the, and the, the kind of controversies that, that were generated there, because I feel like it, you know, what bubbled up from there were these, were these really interesting philosophical uh, debates. What's missing from that is the tremendous amount of steady, constant hard work of actually maintaining 
these animal welfare organizations uh, and and expanding them to you know really in lines in some ways with Berg's vision. Berg was not you know an environmentalist. I don't think anybody he didn't understand the wider structural challenges and damage that were be, that was being done to to most animals. He was aware of the buffalo being overhunted, but other than that, I, he, he didn't think in environmental terms. But I think so. I think you know, it led me to think much more about, about what happened since Berg died in 1888 and how many, you know, really for another 150 years, how much hard institutional building and uh, legislative work has had to be uh, done in order to keep the movement uh, building on Berg's vision. Do you think he'd be pleased by what he saw today in terms of the progress of that movement, or would he shake his head in despair? Both. <laughs> That's always a good answer when you're when you're talking about history, right? I think he would he would be uh, deeply impressed by the fact that the the movement has expanded in in the ways that it has. Uh, at the same time, it's hard not to look at the, some of the fights that he fought in in the 1870s and 80s and and not see that we're we're doing fighting a different versions of the same battle. Wayne, you would be a good person to weigh in on on that as well. Well, I agree with uh, with Dr. Freeberg. I mean the. The scale of animal protection advocacy, the professionalism in the field, with literally you know, hundreds of organizations with paid employees and then thousands of organizations driven by volunteerism, made by participation and number of donors, one of the top movements in the United States. You only need a movement when you've got a big problem. So the presence of that large movement is itself an indicator of the scale of the exploitation. And, you know, I, I go back often to Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he talked about human society and whether it's gotten more humane or more violent or less violent, more violent. And he says, we've gotten less violent. People are living longer. They're leading better lives. We have better care for people. But he said, we'll look back 50 years forward and be astonished by a few things that happen in our age. And he said one of them is animal cruelty, and particularly he said the other was criminal justice reform and the incredible number of people uh, penal system. So we've got a lot of work to do, which, which reflects the incredible variety of exploitation. Freeberg's work, again, you know, a traitor to his species, which is, Look what, what what somebody called him uh, because of, of his work. Uh, th- this was remarkably foresighted work that this guy was doing in the late 19th century. It's just amazing to see Dr. Freeberg's um, accounts of him working on so many issues. And that problem still plagues the animal protection movement. So many varieties of exploitation with people profiting, getting money and having jobs tied to that exploitation, which makes it a difficult setup because you're, you're, you're basically saying, okay, we're going to sacrifice some economics in theory in order to do right in the world. And that becomes a difficult, a difficult task for the reformer to prevail in. Dr. Freeberg, as, as we get to the end of our interview, I'd like to ask you to look back at the culture in which um, uh, Mr. Berg did his work Compare that or contrast that with the time we are in now. It seems to me we're in a period where Black Lives Matter, the increasing attention we're paying, uh, you know, between, you know, the haves, the have-nots, the income inequality. Do you see any parallels as a historian between the late 1800s and the early 21st century? Well, many people have drawn connections between what we you know, sometimes talk about as the modern Gilded Age and the age of, of Berg and you know, economic disparity, uh, issues of, of uh, racism and uh, ethnic conflict and urban problems, uh, you know, very much were first being tackled in, in this period. And you get a sense that we're back to a, a renewed attention to, to those, or at least a, you know, an anxiety about those uh, in, in the years ahead. You know that it took a while, but I but the, the progressive era that sort of evolves out of this uh, that picks up some of the animal welfare ideas and and uh, certainly it expands the social welfare network uh, through the late 19th and early 20th century. 
but I think you know we may be headed in that direction with a, a renewal of attention, uh, new focus on a, on a broader empathy and, and more democratization. Let's hope so. There are people who who say that that Henry Berg was a racist, a nativist, that he was focused on the Irish and the Italians and other newly arrived people, bringing some of their their uh, traditions of animal use um, into the United States. You know, it's a complicated question. I mean, I wonder if you might unpack that a little bit because we have that as a contemporary debate that the people say, oh, our attempts to stop cockfighting, you know, are, are focused on stopping people who bring that tradition into the United States. I mean, I don't think of Berg, while he may have said racist things behind the scenes, I, I don't know. I think that he was very broad-minded in his opposition to cruelty. And he was prepared to take on patrician, multi-generation Americans, as well as newly minted Americans in the forms of their cruelty to animals. That's absolutely right. And he certainly was a, you know, as like many uh, Yankee patricians at the time, he was concerned about, especially the Irish, and considered uh, that American democracy was threatened by, by uh, by city machines and so forth, and the corruption at the ballot box, that that kind of thing. But you're right; he, he he considered cruelty to be something which every you know was not a matter of any particular class. And he went way out of his way to make sure, uh, you know, he, he was deeply bothered by the claim that he was picking in, in on one particular group or another. He called out, you know, whether it be Jewish butchers and the kosher practices, or um, Irish. Uh, practicing dog fighting, or it was Vanderbilt uh, and, and his treatment of his horses. Uh, it, it didn't really matter. He, you know, he was he was on the side of the animals and felt like both rich and poor were quite capable of of uh, cruel behavior that needed to be stopped. All right, thank you. Our, our guest has been Dr. Ernest Freebird, uh, author of several books. Uh, most recently, A Traitor to His Species: Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights. Movement. It's available now wherever you buy all your fine hardcover uh, books. Uh, it's a delightful read, very vividly written. Uh, I learned a lot from it, and I think anyone who is interested in advocacy of any kind of making a difference in our modern world will pick up a lot of interesting and helpful facts and tactics, strategies of uh, what Mr. Berg has to teach us. So thank you, sir. Really appreciated it. And uh, and Wayne, thank you, of course. Uh, we missed Marty, but uh, he'll be with us uh, next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.